Well, let me invite you to turn to our, uh, our, our scripture passage this morning. We're in the 34th chapter of the book of Genesis, and I can almost guarantee you, well, maybe you'll tell me afterwards, I can almost guarantee you uh, that you probably haven't heard a sermon on this text. Um, maybe you'll tell me, uh, and you'll surprise me. I hope you have. I'm not saying that out of a, a good thing. I hope you have heard, but uh, it's not one of the more popular things to uh, talk about. You know, if, if your son or if your daughter came home from the library uh, with a book that had a story like this in it, you would uh, call the librarian and say, who gave them to it? Who, who gave the book to them? And you would march them down right back to the library and you would throw that book back to the librarian. It's not a story we like to have, but it's a story that God gives to us. So let's come to it. Let's see what, uh, what God has for us in store uh, in this hour to come. Uh, we'll read the whole of the chapter let me invite you and encourage you to remember this ain't just an old story. It's not just my words. This is actually given to the church to build us up. So let's listen by the ear. Let's expect God to work as his word moves. Beginning in verse 1, we're told in the middle of our story with Jacob, we're told this. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke to them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give, him, give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. Get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob entered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, uh, we, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we'll give our daughters to you and we'll take your daughters to ourselves. We'll dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came up to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it for look. The land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock 
their property and all their beasts be ours? Let us agree with them and they'll live with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamer and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered their city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I'll be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Nothing's the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts. Let's pray and ask that even this word might be a blessing to us. Father, we come, we come grieving, we come sad, we come confronted with ugliness, with evil. May the shock of your greater goodness to us outweigh the shock of the evil here. But help us to see as Christians how to live in a world soaked in evil. As people whose hearts are so often soaked likewise. By your spirit work in us this hour. Open our ears, open our hearts. To behold Christ even in this. I pray in his name these things. Amen. As I said, this is not a, a text we like. It's not one you're going to read for your devotional time and say, ah, it was so uplifting. It was so spiritual. I had a, a God moment. It's not the uh, 23rd Psalm. You know, when I was in third grade, my uh, teacher, she was a Christian. She made us memorize a part of the Bible. She didn't choose this chapter. 23rd Psalm all the way. It was Great. Wonderful. Not this chapter, though. This is the one that doesn't appear in the kids' story Bibles. Even reading it out loud, maybe you were squirming a little bit. But it's right here in the middle of God's word. And if we believe, as we do, that the Holy Spirit actually set these words down for our good, somehow for our good, we have to figure out why. To figure out why. It's a weird tale, not only because of what it's subject is, but it's a weird tale because it comes at a weird time. If you've been with us for the past little while, we've been looking at the life of Abraham and Isaac, and now we're hitting the life of Jacob. We'll be getting to the life of Joseph pretty soon. Classic Bible stories. It's felt like we're kind of coming to the end of Jacob's story. You remember God had promised all the way back, Jacob, you're at Bethel. I see. I, I show you my ladder. I show you the angels. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back to this land. And you remember Jacob went out. He went out to the desert. He went out to his, his uncle Laban. He, he worked so hard. He got two wives. He comes back. And finally, God has succeeded. Jacob has a family. Jacob has money. Jacob is back in the land. It feels like the story of Jacob's over. He's just met up with his brother Esau, the big bad bully, the villain, and yet they've been reunited. It's been a glorious moment of God's grace. Jacob's been transformed to Israel. He's shown humility, and it feels like, all right, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's get to Joseph. Let's get to the good stuff. Another interesting story. Hero number four coming on the scene. Not quite. Not quite. 
We have this story right here. Feels like an interruption. We don't want this interruption. Why is it here? I think the, the clue for us is to realize this is the fourth time in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the fourth time that a woman has been seen and taken. The fourth time. You saw it with Abraham and Sarah. Twice Sarah was looked at. She's very pretty. Some powerful foreigner likes her. Pharaoh, Abimelech, threatens to take her. Sometimes they do take her. They don't touch her, though. Rebecca with Isaac. Same scenario. Abimelech comes and he sees. She's pretty. You recall Abraham had kind of twisted it and said, hey, she's my sister. He tried to get out of it, those sort of things. We covered that. But the key to see this story is to realize that Jacob is going through what his daddy went through. He's going through what his granddad went through. He's being tested. And the bad thing about this is that unlike his other, unlike his family, unlike his granddad, unlike Abraham, unlike Isaac, this is way worse. Those were all previews. This is way worse. Sarah was taken but not touched. Rebecca was delivered. Dinah's not. Over there, she's delivered by, by, by destruction, by vigilante murder, justice. So that's, that's the background of the story. That will explain why this is here. To show us. To show us that things actually are not getting better with Jacob. It's not that you have three great family lines and then things are getting better because you're all Christian. You're all kind of getting better and better. No, things are getting worse and worse apart from God. Apart from God. We'll, we'll see that in, in three ways here. You have your outline. We'll look first at uh, what I call both the shock of Shechem, what you might call the, 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 the Christian problem of life in a world of sin, the Christian problem of a life in the world of evil. We read first here, verse, uh, well, look back actually at, at the last chapter, verse 19. We read, Jacob comes safely to Shechem. He lives at Shechem. He's now here. He's with the people of the land. We said that's not a bad move. His dad had been there before. His granddad had been there before. He's here now. He's at Shechem. That's a fine place to be. And yet we read now, verse 1, that Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she had born to Jacob, she goes out to see the woman in the land. Dinah, the scholars tell me, is about 15 years old here, probably, teenager. And she's going out to see the, see the woman of the land. What's behind this? She's going to the mall. She's going to the square. She's going to the coffee shop. She wants to hang out with her, her girlfriends and chit-chat. That's what we think. Is that a bad thing? The rabbis thought it was bad. The Jewish rabbis thought that actually what she's doing here is uh, really going out to see the, see the guys. She's going out to seduce somebody. And that's what her mom did with Jacob way back in the day. Now, that's attractive. The issue is it says she didn't go out to see the guys. The text is very clear. She went out to see the women. She's just going out. To the girls. That in itself is not an issue. You recall that Rachel and Rebecca had the freedom to do that. Rachel and Rebecca go out to the wells. They go out to the flocks. They go out by themselves. But the key here, the issue is what we're told about Dinah. That the author focuses on the fact she is the daughter of Leah. She is the daughter of the, of the unloved wife. Leah, you remember the unloved wife? Rachel, the beautiful wife that Jacob loves. Leah, the not as attractive wife whom Jacob doesn't really care about. She's the unloved daughter of an unloved wife. The more the story here is not uh, parents keep your kids at home. The more the story is parents love your kids. If you want to moral the story initially, uh, 
if an unnoticed daughter of an unloved wife and the sin of Jacob in, in polygamy, the sin of Jacob in favoring Rachel, the dysfunction of his family, it's coming home to roost right now in an awful way. That's Dinah. We meet second, the villain. The villain here, Shechem. The bad guy of the story, Shechem. A local prince. Like many guys today, he has power. He has pizzazz. He sees and he takes. He's used to getting what he wants. He's this kind of a guy. Dinah's going to see her friends, but she can't even see her friends. It's, it's really tragic. She can't even get to hang out with them before what happens. Verse 2, he sees her. He sees her. He takes her. He sees her. He takes her. He lies with her. He degrades her. He sees her. He takes her. It's the same verbs used. When Eve sees the apple in the tree, she sees, she likes what she sees, she takes it. Same pattern we've seen with the other guys in these kind of stories so far. Pharaoh sees Sarah. Abimelech sees Rebekah. They see and they take. It's the pattern of evil. You see it, it looks good, you just grab it. The Hebrew grammar, in fact, the the language is, is as coarse and brutal as you can imagine. It's horrible. It's a gruesome act. He takes her. He defiles her. And you'll notice that the the sons of Jacob say, such a thing must not be done. Such a thing must not be done. And yet, once he commits this awful act, two things happen. First, she feels shame. Second, he feels love. It's weird, isn't it? Verse 3, he loved her. He commits this awful act and he loves her. What's that about? What's that about? I think it's, it, it's common to our experience today. We know, we know that this, this happens. He thinks he's being adored. He's interested in power. He's interested in control. And he, he thinks, you know, because uh, she's just there, passive, lying with him, that she must love him. She must respond to my, I, I'm so great. I'm so amazing. She must, she must love me. It's delusional. It's delusional. And so he says, verse 4, He speaks to his father. He commands his father, get me this girl for my wife. He's used to getting what he wants, so he commands dad. Daddy, go out and get her. The king calls up Jacob. says, hey, let's make a deal. Let's think about this, okay? This is the snare. This is the setup. This is the horror. This is the, the shock of Shechem. What are we to make of this? Why is it here? It's here because everybody who reads it if you're an Israelite, if you're reading it, if you're part of the original people who would have heard the story, you would have known the kind of people that are in the land are bad people. The kind of people in the land that God's called us to live in, they're despicable people. They're not good people. These are the kind of people who see a young lady and they grab her off the street. This is why the men of the son of Jacob, verse 7, are angry. They're indignant. They're furious. As indeed you should be. They're angry. This is the morality of Canaan. But friends, it's the morality of our world too. This should not be at all far off from what you you think and you see and you tend to experience, uh, at least in the news reports. In the modern world, we believe two very different things about sex like this. On the one hand, we say, you know, intercourse is just physical. It's natural. Not a big deal. It's just... You have a desire, you, see, you feel something, you see something, take it, grab it. Take, take the person, grab the person, do it, whatever. No big deal. It, it's biological, it's natural. 
It's a kind of view that encourages playboy princess like this. Kind of view that encourages people like this. See and take. See and take. On the other hand, you don't have to be a Christian to know that that's not true. Our, our world says on the one hand it's very casual. On the other hand, uh, intimacy is very, very significant. We're told that, you know, you need to have the one. You need to have that, that uniting. Your body may feel like it's natural, but your heart and soul say it's not just a casual thing. It's the uniting of everything that I am. So we know this as, as human beings. We, we're caught between these two truths in our world today. And that's why, for most folks, we are very confused. We live in a world that is very confused. On the one hand, we hear stories like this on a daily basis, and we express horror at them. But a non-Christian does not have the resources to fully condemn these sort of things. Sadly. I mean, you hear it in the language people say about Christianity. The Christian view of, of, of sex is so restrictive. Stories like this say, maybe there should be some restrictions on it. Maybe every desire you have should not just be uh, given over to. Maybe you shouldn't just indulge everything, no matter what your orientation is. Something else matters more than people's freedom to fulfill their desires. The issue, contrary to what we're told, is not that Christians are in favor of repressive, repressive ideas or other people are just full freedom. Everybody believes in repression. Everybody believes certain desires should be restricted. And the Bible, and the Bible alone, has an unconfused idea. We're told on the one hand by our world, the body's a toy, a plaything. And yet the body is important. Only Christians can say the body's not a plaything at the temple. Only Christians can say you are made in God's image and therefore you are worth it. You are made in God's image and therefore you're a temple. You are made in God's likeness, and therefore you matter. Christians ought to be the first to look at something like this and say, this is horrible, not just because he sees and he takes. This is horrible because of what it says about a human being. Your body's a temple, not a toy. Josephine Butler may not be a name you know. Josephine Butler lived about 140 years ago. She campaigned against the trafficking and the enslavement of Indian daughters and women for British soldiers. The British bureaucrats... Christian, ostensibly, said, look, we need, uh, what is the word they used? We need to have an arrangement. I think that's the word they used. We need to have an arrangement with our soldiers and the local women. And the arrangement was they would send out the, the police and take all the daughters as Shechem took Dinah, and they would bring them back, and they would have them for the, for the soldiers. Josephine Butler, a Christian, labored 20 years 20 years fighting against the tide of British imperialism, bureaucracy, and sin. What, did, what, what compelled her to do that? The gospel. She regularly housed broken women who had been discarded by their British betters. Because she understood that this is no trivial matter. It was her Christianity that compelled her to see <clears throat> that there must be something more than plaything. Our bodies are not toys, but temples. That's why, friends, when you see a backlash in society against the kind of predators like this, people are looking for a Christian answer. You have the resources as a Christian to speak powerfully into places and moments like this. Do you use them? Do you use them? But in this story, of course, we get a glimpse in the nature of the world. The Bible makes plain that the world in which we live, the folks in which you talk to, 
is a present evil age, not just America in the 2020s, but every age. There's no golden age you can look back to and say, oh, it was better in granddaddy's day. There's no country you can go to to find holiness. The Bible makes plain that ultimately there are two types of people in this world. There's the church and there's the world. And the Bible does not hide from us what people do whose hearts are of the world. The Bible does not hide from you some sort of naive view about how people live and act. This is real and raw. It is true. And yet we see even here that in the church, what happens? Look at Jacob. What does Jacob do? He holds his peace. We're told, we're never told Jacob is angry. We're never told Jacob is angry. In fact, the only anger he has is at the very end. We'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. Who's angry? Verse 7, the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Dinah. The brothers of Dinah are angry. Of course, we understand that. But the problem is, where's Dinah's dad? Where's Dinah's dad in any of this? Where's his reaction? See, friends, there's a danger that Jacob shows to us and the danger that we have as Christians, knowing that God has given us this world for our enjoyment. God's giving you food to enjoy. We're going to have some good food downstairs. God's giving you food. He's giving you this earth to enjoy. He's giving you drink. He's giving you money. He's giving you sex to enjoy. But we cannot be so foolish as to think that we enjoy them like non-Christians enjoy those things. You are to, you are to enjoy those things, Yes. But God gives them to you in a different way than he gives them to those who don't believe in Christ. You cannot be so foolish as to think, as Jacob may have, I can do whatever I like. No effect on me. I can watch whatever I like. I can read whatever I like. I can be totally naive and undiscerning because people are just good people at heart. Friends, the Bible is very plain. There's a Shechem. There's a Shechem. That's why we are told in 1 John 2, the Apostle John says, if you befriend the world, you make enemies with God. Notice carefully what he does not say. He does not say, if you befriend the people of the world. You're called to befriend the people of the world. The condemnation that John gives is friendship with the things of the world. Very different. Very crucial nuance. God comes to his people. And he says, do you want to be like this kind of person who sees and takes? Do you want to be like Satan who encourages you to see and take? Friends, we need to not just be passive recipients of whatever we see or think. We need to not just passively receive the, the media, not passively receive your friends on social media, not passively receive whatever you read or whatever you hear. Even the word of God right now, you are to test it by the word. You and I are not as strong as we think. That's the problem of living in the world. You get Shechem happening. You get Dinah defiled. That's what happens in this world. Second, we see here the horror of Hamor. This is the, the, the kind of major part of the, of the, of the story. In one sense, the, the story focuses on the offer that Hamor makes. Hamor says, uh, Shechem's dad, he says, verse 8, Hey, my son likes your daughter. Let's get married. And let's just not just, not just marry them, but let's all come together. We'll be one big happy family. Your kids can marry my kids. Uh, your flocks be my flocks and all the rest. It'll be great. Well, you, we'll let you have property. We have this great, you know, real estate. You can have it. We'll give you a good deal. And then Shechem says, I mean, just think, think of the, the, the arrogance of Shechem. He's come before the, the brothers of the girl he's defiled. He's come before her dad. And he says this in verse, verse 11. Let me find favor in your eyes. Really? 
how is he going to find favor in their eyes? He thinks the other way. What's his way? I'll pay you whatever. I got money. I'll give you whatever you want. Ask of me and I will give it. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Does that sound familiar? If you're a Christian, it should be familiar. It's what our Savior said. It's what, it's what is said to our Savior by Satan. In the Gospel of Luke, Satan takes Jesus Christ to the high mountain. He shows him all the kings in the world. He says, look, ask of me and I'll give you all the kings in the world. Whatever you want. Just bow down and worship me. Shechem here is a picture of the dragon. He's a picture of the temptation to make peace with the world. He's a picture of the way in which Satan loves to get you. He loves to get us. It's a trap. We know it's a trap because compare what he says to Jacob to what he says when he goes back home to his buddies. He goes back home to his buddies in the city and uh, he reveals his real motive. Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? He says, I'm telling them I'm going to pay whatever. No, no, in reality, we're going to get all their stuff. This is what sin does to you. It, it promises you so much. It promises you so much. You'll, you'll have a great life. You'll, have, you'll be a good person. You can live your best life now. I mean, isn't that Christianity? Isn't that why Christ came to give you your best life? To make you a happy person, to make you healthy, to make you have a great family. Isn't that why Christ came? And it all just says, hey, ignore all the suffering. Ignore all that cross work. Ignore all that Jesus Christ says about taking up your cross and following hard after me. Ignore all that stuff. See, the lie of Satan is not, uh, this isn't true. The lie of Satan is, this is true. Just submit to me. The lie of Satan, Satan does not come directly against God's word. He quotes God's word. He knows God's word. The lie of Shechem is not, hey, we hate you. The lie of Shechem is, let's come together. And I'll win in the end. I'll get, you, I'll, I'll get you better in the end. It's a trap. It's a trap. But for Jacob, it's worse. It's worse because he has been given the promise by God, the covenant promise. I will be your God. You'll be mine. I'll be with you. You'll be my people. But if you ally with these folks, the kind of people who do this stuff to Dinah, You'll be comfy. You'll be comfy, but you won't be my people. You'll be comfy. You'll be happy, but you won't be my people. This is how God's promise is threatened. Notice there's no swords here. There's no army. There's no political threat. There's no kind of uh, big military might. It's not obvious. Shechem comes with words. This is how the covenant's undone. It seems so innocent. And friends, that's the temptation you face as a Christian. The temptation is don't be weird. Be cool. Don't be weird. Be cool. Be like everybody else. Don't be countercultural. The hippies had it right. We are called to be countercultural. They just may not have the right culture in mind. You are called to be countercultural as a Christian. Are you? Now you realize in one way you're being countercultural this morning. You are giving up a perfectly good morning to sleep in. You are giving the, uh, up a great morning to mow your lawn. You're giving up a wonderful brunch you could be having right now. I mean, that orange juice would feel so good, wouldn't it? You are giving up something by being here. You are being countercultural. When the world says, hey, Jesus is great. Be a Christian, but don't be, you know, nosy about it. Don't, don't be kind of uh, annoying about it. 
You know, be a Christian, but not one of the annoying ones. Be a Christian who doesn't, you know, ever talk about Jesus too much. That's a weird, that's a religious thing. Don't do that. Be a Christian and have fun. And that's all. That's the promise checking gifts. What's the reaction, though? Finally, we see thirdly, the judgment of Jacob and his sons. What really is an inadequate solution to fight the world? From verse 13 all the way down to verse 30, Jacob says nothing. The only thing he says in the, in the whole chapter is in verse 30. He blames his sons for what they have done. He says, guys, you've troubled me. You've made me stink to everybody. It's fascinating here that Jacob, the father of this young, of this teenage girl, has no real concern about her. His main concern is about himself. He says, look, I'm small and they're big. They could beat me up. They could crush me. And his words are all about himself. Me, me, me. My numbers are few. I shall be destroyed. I and my household. Me, 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 me. Jacob's about himself. He is selectively moral, like most Christians, like most of us, like your heart. Selectively moral. Outraged about some things. And yet blind to his own selfishness. And yet his sons seem to be the heroes of the story. Simeon and Levi. I mean, look what they do. Verse 13, that they hear the, they hear the, the promise, the offer of Shechem. And notice that Jacob does not respond, but they respond. They say, all right, we're going to answer you deceitfully. They've learned from their dad, Jacob, how to deal with these sort of problems. They're going to be just like him. They're going to answer him in a deceitful way. They say, look, we have this weird custom. We like to get circumcised. You can just do this, this little thing. It's, it's a weird thing. You know, our dads did it. Our granddads did it. This is kind of just what we do. If y'all just do it, all your guys, just, just uh, get circumcised, then uh, we'll do it. We'll take, the, we'll take the offer. We'll take the offer. It's interesting, of course, that in this description, one name never comes up. Simeon and Levi and all the rest never mention God. Part of the tragedy here is that they don't have a place for God in their view of God. Their place is all about religious custom, rituals, rites. They don't mention the promises of God. They mention the history of God. They just say, hey, uh, do this one thing and we'll be good. And you see in verse, uh, verse 19, Hamor, this playboy prince, he's so excited. He's the first guy to do it. He says, yes, all right, I'll do it. Now, I will say, I've, as a guy, I have a hard time thinking that every man here would be cheering at the prospect of undergoing this operation as an adult male. you got to realize, of course, that they don't have surgical knives. Back in those days, they have sharp rocks and unsteady hands. Not easy, not pretty. We're told that after three days, they're sore. Verse 25. You know, isn't that the way? We, 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 you, you've had operations, right? You've had surgery. And it, the first day is always fine. Second day, it's a little bad. Painkillers help. The third day is the worst, right? The fourth day is the worst. Those are the days when the pain really gets to you. So they wait. Simeon and Levi, they're good schemers. They're smart people. They're cunning. They wait till day three. They enter the town with their servants, and they massacre all the guys. They kill all the men. And they were told, shockingly, verse 26, oh, here's a surprise. They take Dinah out of Shechem's house. Here's a little sting in the tail. In case you didn't get this, uh, Dinah had been kidnapped. 
She hadn't just been defiled. Shechem had taken her. It's even worse than what we thought before. She had been kidnapped. They rescue. They annihilate a whole group of people for the sake of their sister. They take all the possessions, the women, the kids. And I think that for many of us, this is where we say, yes, justice. There's something in me that empathizes with this. that says, this is right. This is good. Doesn't it resonate with you to get back at the man who did that kind of action? I mean, in one way, it is an eye for an eye in a kind of ironic way. The organ that committed the evil is the organ that proves the downfall of Shechem. Of course, the problem is the offender isn't the only one who dies. They don't just kill the one guy who did it. They massacre everybody. And this is where there's a perversion of justice. It's vigilante justice. It's citizen arrest and killing. They wipe the city off the map when only Shechem was the guilty party. We're told, unlike the story of Phineas, which looks similar in the book of Numbers, we're told actually Jacob disapproves. We're told and given a commentary on what they do and on his deathbed. Jacob will say, Genesis 49, he'll say these words. Because Levi and Simeon killed men in their anger and destroyed oxen in their pleasure, cursed is their anger because it's strong and their wrath because it's harsh. Their anger because it's strong, their wrath because it's harsh. You see, Simeon and Levi represent one way that you want to deal with evil. They represent one way that your heart desires to deal with evil. Wipe it out, no matter the price. When you exalt purity above peace, when you exalt holiness above unity, whether it's the Crusades or the latest legislation before Congress, we believe that our means for vengeance, our means for upholding God are good no matter what. Simeon and Levi are rebuked. Why are they rebuked here? They are ultimately rebuked because they use worldly means to execute justice to bring about a purified kingdom. And yet the narrative ends with this big problem. I mean, there is justice of a sense done, but there's still a big issue. Dinah's been defiled. I mean, yeah, the guy's been killed, but she's still defiled. What do you do with that? And, and it kind of leaves us hanging, right? She's not mentioned again, by the way. There's, there's no, like, nice little story that comes up later. Says, oh, by the way, Dinah was, you know, restored by God, and all things went well, and there were unicorns and flowers. No, there's none of that. There's, there's no story that makes up for this. Except slaughter. And that's why the story ends with this question. How do you deal with a problem like Shechem? How do you deal with a problem like Dinah? How do you deal with a problem like sin? How do you do it? One way, of course, is the way of the sons, massacre. Let the whole people die for one man's sin. This is the approach that political conservatives love. Get tough on crime. Law and order. The problem is that obliterates the sinner. That annihilates the evildoer. The one who destroyed is destroyed. The one who uh, defiled Israel is destroyed. But nobody's purified. Donna still is impure. On the other hand, you have Jacob, Jacob, the pragmatist, Jacob, the person who cares about himself. Jacob says, hey, hey, you know, don't get involved in their mess. Jacob is the classic political liberal, sinner untouched. After all, you know, you have to remember Shechem's 
parents were Canaanites, you can't expect them to really understand how to act morally. You have to understand the background, the context. But friends, neither the liberal pragmatic answer nor the conservative hardness answers the problem of sin. One destroys the sinner and the other deals too lightly with sin. Those are both bad ways to deal with sin. And the problem is that you take one of those. Every Christian in this room, your heart is tempted to go one of those two routes when you see sin in yourself, others, the world around you. The temptation you have is to be pragmatic and soft about it. The temptation you have is to be hard about it. Be morally pure about it. In other words, the temptation, friends, is to be God. To be God. To judge. There is a world that will be judged. But the Bible says over and over again, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Says the Lord. You're not God. I'm not God. We're not the ones sitting on the great white throne. But friends, more than that, the beauty, there is beauty here. Maybe hard to see it, but there's beauty here. More than that, the answer to the resolution of this problem is found in the fact that two people don't talk in this story. There are two characters who are totally silent in this story. You know who they are? One of them is obvious. It's Dinah. Dinah. Dinah never talks. She is passive. She has little if no agency. She is trapped. She is the unloved daughter of an unloved wife. She ends up actually literally trapped and kidnapped. For many folks, that kind of proves why Christianity and churches are bad. You know, just let men, men do things and poison life, and that's just the problem with the world today. I would say part of the answer to that, that objection is that the Bible itself, God's word, includes a story like this. God includes in himself, in his story of grace, in his view of the world, he particularly, deliberately inspires this story. That means he must put away your naive pie-in-the-sky view of Christianity. This is not Hobby Lobby Christianity. You will not find this chapter stenciled on some wall or on a pillow at your local craft store. But the real answer to the objection that people have, the real answer to the problem of Dinah defiled and sin here, is found in the second person who's silent in the story. This is literally a godless story. God is not mentioned here. This is an atheistic story. This is what happens when functional atheists work. Justice, vigilante style, massacring, pillaging. Many Christians are functional atheists. This is what we do when we take it into our own hands. So what's the answer? The answer is the fact that God is silent. God is silent just like Dinah is silent. God is silent just like Dinah is silent. Why are they silent? Because their mouth talks. Shechem has a big mouth. Jacob has his mouth. The sons talk with their swords. What do we do here? It's a signal, friends, of the way God will handle evil. It's a signal of the way God will actually bring about the purification of Dinah and all who are like her. It's a signal of the way God will handle actual worse evil than that. He will endure the shame of Dinah. He will endure the silence. He will be the lamb who is silent. He will identify with Dinah and her horror. He will do that in a way that, if you can imagine, is even more despicable. He will be mocked. He will be Stabbed, he will be pierced, he will be silent like a lamb before its shearer is silent. And in that, friends, 
we see that Jesus eradicates sin by dying to it. He eradicates sin by dying to it. Unlike this chapter, what happens in this chapter? What's the math in this chapter? There's a math equation here. The math equation is one man's sin, many die for that one man's sin. God has opposite math. The gospel math is the opposite equation. Gospel math is one man dies for the sin of the many. Gospel math is Jesus Christ Through weak, pathetic, stupid-looking means, God promises that all the nations of the earth will bow to him one day. It's not through political election. I'm I'm so sorry about those who are looking forward to uh, that being the means. It's not through economic prosperity. It's not through your strength. It's not through you declaring justice as mine and vengeance as mine. Is by coming to the altar of Christ, by coming to the cross of Christ, where the death and resurrection of the Savior is what creates the marvelous transformation of the enemies of God into friends. What's the real shocking part about the Bible story here? What's the real shock of Shechem? It's not the action. Do you know what the real shocking thing about the story is? Let me tell you, okay? You ready for it? People like Shechem who commit gross evil, sick evil, the kind of evil that you don't want to have when you come to church because church is about being nice and happy and comfortable. The radical, shocking nature of the gospel of God is that even Shechem can be saved. People like that, playboys like that. Are you more shocked by the idea that your little boys and girls might hear this text? Or are you more shocked by the radical nature of God's grace? Christ died for Dinah. Yes, Christ died for Dinah. And yet Christ also dies that even Shechem's may come under his glorious wings. The word, in other words, slays. The word slays. The word turns enemies of God into friends. The word of God itself, the gospel alone, does what neither the conservative tough on crime or the liberal pragmatic soft answer does. The gospel is the only thing that can eradicate sin without eradicating the evildoer. What does Shechem do? What does Levi and Simeon do? They eradicate the, the sinner. Only God can kill sin in your heart without killing the sinner, without killing you. I mean, think about yourself, friends. Think about yourself. The life you lived before Christ. Was it not a Shechem life? You saw and you grabbed. Oh, I mean, you were more restrained probably. You didn't do what he did. But you basically wanted something and you did everything you could to get it. You worked people, you worked hard, you, you uh, rationalized, you manipulated, you did whatever you could to get what you want. And then one day, the God of all grace gave the word of all comfort. You heard the word of the gospel, and your life was changed. Not perfectly, not all at once, of course. There is fight, there is struggle against sin in your own heart. But what does God call you now? A friend of God. He calls you his friend. Not by passing a law, not by taking up the sword, not by marching Not by some pill, not by some conference, not by some 12-step program, not by some technique, not by some good moral you heard at church, not by some principle some friend posted online, not by worldly weapons, but by coming simply to Christ. Where does Dinah go when she's defiled? She comes to Christ. She comes to the cross, and she puts her hope there. Have you learned that lesson, dear Christian? Have you learned that Christ alone is your hope and stay? Yes, we live in a world that is horrible. And you have a heart that's, that likes the horror. Yes, we live in a world of temptation, but the victory we have over the world is not pragmatism. 
but it's in Christ. It's receiving by weakness the faith, the foolish things of God that are wiser than the wisdom of man. And that's how God will conquer. That's how God will deal with Shechem. That's how God will deal with the evil one. That's how God will live in your life. Therefore, let's fight in his way, not ours. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to mourn with those who mourn, that you would allow us to be silent like Dinah, that you would give us not just the example of Christ, but the empathy of Christ, the heart of Christ, that gentle and lowly heart that's willing to see the defiled and come to them. We pray as well, Lord, that you would give us, yes, that passion for justice like Levi and Simeon had, yes, that outrage and immorality, yes, but that you would... Help us to take that to you. Help us to entrust ourselves to the judge of all the earth who does what's right. We thank you for Christ, for his blood poured out, for his silence, and yet for his word that still speaks. His blood that still speaks, a better word than the blood of Abel or the body of Dinah. We thank you that he has been raised with the body that we shall have on that great day. We pray that he would come quickly, that there would be a last judgment, that there would finally be that open day where he comes to judge the living and the dead. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.